Well, beloved, we are in 1 Peter, so I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible with you, then there are blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you, and you can grab that Bible and open to page 1015, and that should bring you to our text this morning. Our witness in the workplace. So... As we continue to work our way uh, through 1 Peter, what I want to do, and I'll probably do this again, is I want to take a moment to remind you, as we have discussed before when we, we went through the introduction of the book, that Peter was writing to Christians, and it's just as important to remember even as we read the text today, uh, who to one degree or another were suffering. And suffering primarily on account of their Christian faith. On account of their Christian faith. And I think I've said this before as well. That's hard for me to to fully relate to as an American living here in this country. It's hard for me to understand what these Christians were going through, suffering for their faith, living in very different situation than the one that we have. Our lives are, relatively speaking, now Chris mentioned China, so I was even just thinking about that, you know, the potential for me as a pastor to go off to a camp where I would be imprisoned and forced to work the sewers or, or such things as this. I know nothing like that. I've never known anything like that. And yet, the people of God have known those things, and It's not just past history, it's even in some places that is still true. And and I had said to you that I thought that that this book was timely to to be discussing right now this letter, 1 Peter, because even though it is hard for us to relate right now, I am convinced that it may not be that hard for us to relate in the near future to suffering for our faith as true believers. This country is is rapidly becoming more and more secular and or intolerant of authentic Christianity. Intolerant. I I love all the talk about tolerance. Tolerant for everything except Christianity. And by that I mean authentic. I said authentic because... I believe that there will be some form of Christianity that is accepted in the future, but I would call it apostate Christianity, false Christianity, a Christianity that is turned away from the truth. And this is, when I say those things, I don't believe it's a sky is falling kind of statement. You remember that story from maybe a young child, you know, the little chicken, thank you, chicken little acorn fell on his head, and he began to tell everyone the story that, He believed the sky was falling and it was the end of the world. This is not an acorn falling on your head kind of scenario. This is real. Our country faces potentially very dark days. And maybe we will know in a very more real way what it is to suffer for your faith, as our brothers and sisters have all around the world and in history. And so, because of that, it would be certainly good to be familiar with a letter that addresses 
and speaks to suffering Christians so that we might know how we are to respond and, and what we can expect. So the Apostle Peter wrote to these suffering Christians living in the first century and under the pagan Roman Empire to encourage them by reminding them of the great hope of their salvation in Christ and to instruct them about how they, as the people of God, as citizens of heaven, as aliens and strangers in this world, this is not our home, how they are to conduct themselves in and before a fallen and Christ-rejecting world. That's First Peter. And what we find in this letter is that Peter calls upon Christians, and, and so us as well, to continually entrust themselves to Almighty God and to keep doing good, obeying the Lord, living excellently, no matter what their circumstances, no matter what their circumstances. If even they were to be imprisoned, as, those, as, as, as Chris just shared that story, no matter what the circumstances, continuing to entrust themselves to God and do good. And when Christians do good or conduct themselves in an honorable and excellent way before a watching world, and they are watching, especially, beloved, in the midst of suffering for their faith, then by their behavior, they not only effectively refute the foolish and false criticisms from those who oppose Christianity, but listen, they also strongly testify to or give evidence of the beauty and transforming power of the gospel that they say they believe and that they proclaim to this lost world. And, and they witness to their hope and confidence in their God and the incredible promises that he has made to them as his redeemed people. Or you could say that they witness to having a heavenly perspective or focus, which, by the way, helps open the door to evangelistic opportunities. Why are, why are you the way you are? Why do you not respond like the world responds? Why do you seem not to be so concerned about your circumstances and, and do good even when the pressure is on you and you're being punished even for good doing? Well, let me tell you why. Because this is not my home. This is not my world. I serve a God and I am focused on the world to come. Let me tell you about that world. It opens up the door for evangelistic opportunity. Now, picking back up where we left off last time, Peter, as he, he begins to elaborate on this, this living, this beautiful living, this excellent living that, 
this, this good conduct we are to have before this watching world, regardless of the circumstances, Peter, after commanding the Christian readers to be subject to or live in submission to the governing authorities of the land, which in general means that they were to be obedient and law-abiding citizens, they weren't to be rebels, they weren't to try to overthrow the government, now, after speaking in that, to that matter, he turns his attention to a segment of the Christian community. That is, those who were house servants or servants working in a household. And commands them to be subject to or in submission to, you know, we'll read it in a second, not their bosses, but their masters. Their masters, or those who, at that time in history, lawfully, lawfully had absolute power and authority over them. These servants were slaves, which means they were not free individuals serving other individuals. Okay? Now, during Peter's time, slaves not only made up a significant part of the Roman Empire, but also the church community. Some scholars suggest that most of the Christians that Peter was writing to were indeed slaves. Commenting on the historical nature of slavery as we see it here in 1 Peter, one writer says, the institution of slavery was a deeply rooted part of the economy and social structure of the Roman Empire. In Rome and the larger cities of the empire, more than half of the total population in the New Testament times were slaves. More than half. Another writer commenting on this particular historical situation says, Slavery began with Roman conquest, okay? Rome is the ruling empire of the world at this time. And they, they became the ruling empire by conquering other peoples and bringing them under their rule. Slaves being originally mainly prisoners taken in war. And in very early times, Rome had few slaves, but by the New Testament times were counted by the millions. In the Roman Empire, there were as many as 60 million slaves. It's an estimate, of course. And part, part of the, the process there is as they conquered peoples and took to themselves prisoners of war, they then enslaved them, made them their servants. And then as time went by, there was less conquering. They, they ruled. But the servants would then, they were allowed to cohabitate. They would bear children. But the children would be born into servanthood or slavery. They belonged to the master of their parents. And so this, over a couple of generations, this continued, and the slave population then grew to the point where it was, it was a good portion of the entire population a slave population. Now, before we read our text, I want to read several other passages in the New Testament 
just for context, that speak directly, and because I want to I show you something unique about 1 Peter. But uh, they all speak directly to Christians who were living as slaves in the first century. And all of them, just so you know, were written by the Apostle Paul. He is the human author of all these passages. So we have Peter, which we'll look at in a second, and then the Apostle Paul. He speaks several times to the issue. I want to just quickly read those with you. So you can flip there or you can look up on the screen, but Ephesians, beginning in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start there. And I'll make a few comments as we go. Just want to hear, I want you to hear these statements so you can bring all of that to bear on our text this morning. Bond servants, uh, verse 5. Bond servants is, uh, it translates a word that was used of slaves in general. Uh, other translations just use the word slaves, but some have chosen the word bond servants because they're trying to distinguish from the slavery of the 19th century or American slavery. They're trying to say this was a slightly different, and it, it was slightly different in the sense that it wasn't race-based slavery, certainly, but bond servants. In addition, it was possible under the institution of slavery in the first century that one could choose to indenture themselves or make themselves a slave of a master, and they would do that only because they had no other means of providing for themselves or caring for their family, so they would enslave themselves willfully to someone else who could provide a home or a place for them, but then they would be servants of that master. The reality is in Rome, a majority of these slaves were prisoners of war who then gave births and generations later, and this created the great slave population, okay? Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. This is Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus. With a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, right? You're not doing it just to look good in front of, you know, to please people. But as bond servants of Christ, you're, you're serving the Lord. You're looking to please the Lord, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. So he's making distinguishing classes. There's free men. And they're slaves in society. But either way, doing good, he will be... God keeps account of how you conduct yourselves for him in this world. So whether or not you are rewarded here on this earth, you can be certain that God will reward you for your obedience to him. He's keeping track, and he's very good. He keeps perfect track. Okay, He doesn't miss a beat. Work unto the Lord. Masters, now this is interesting. You notice here, masters are also addressed. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master, the slaves, and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. You better treat your servants well. Because you too will answer and do answer to the master who is there, ultimately who is their master. Okay? All right. 
That's one passage. Colossians 3, 22. Here we are again. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Again, very similar. There's similarities. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Okay, so in, your, in this situation that they're in, as they, as they render good service as slaves to their masters, Paul says you're serving the Lord Christ. And you can count on it that you'll receive a great inheritance. That will be your reward from the Lord. And then 25 says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And again, masters are addressed. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Beloved, um, this is written to Christians. So we know that there, I told you that primarily, uh, most likely, the church was made up of slaves, bonds, ser- servants, bondservants, slaves, house servants, but there were obviously also masters because he's addressing them here in the church and speaking to them about how they are to treat one another in this particular social context. All right, 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled Reviled means uh, if you revile someone, it's to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or injure his or her reputation. He doesn't want the reputation of Christianity to be harmed, and it would be harmed if those who are under the yoke as bondservants were not to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Two, those who have believing masters must not be, again, he addresses masters, disrespectful, or I'm sorry, okay, wait, two, He's still speaking to servants. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. That last part right there, the NIV puts it this way in chapter 2. I'll just read it to you. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. So think about the scenario in, in the church, right? We know there is not male or female or bond or free, slave or free or Jew or Gentile, meaning that not that they aren't those things, but they are one in Christ and they, have, they are equal in Christ in that sense. There's a oneness in the body of Christ. Those distinctions do not separate them in the body of Christ. Outside, though, those distinctions are real. They're real and then they, they must be honored, but in the body So here you go, you've got in the body now slave and master, and maybe in that particular local church, the slave's thinking, wait a minute, this is my brother, we come together, it's my brother, we're we're embracing one another, equals in Christ, but then I have to come under his rule? Yeah. Yeah, you do have to come under his rule, and in fact, don't don't have less respect for him, but rather serve him all the more well because he is a brother in the Lord and bless him with your service. 
Interesting. Some have even said, I mean, this was a potential challenge in the, in the early church because you could potentially have a situation where a servant, a slave, may have been an elder in the church. That's interesting. So he's an elder, and the Bible says that the, the church body is to render submission to the elders of the church. That would include the master's. It could have even been his master. Think about that and the awkwardness of that. So that master would have to, in the church, under that structure, render submission. But as he moves his way back to the household, that servant would have to render submission to that very master in that particular context. So it made probably some interesting conversations and discussion and guidance and shepherding. And finally, I've read you this one before, Titus 2, 9 through 10. Bod servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And, and I said this to you before, another translation of that is, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Which implies, beloved, that if they were not to be submissive to the authority over them, that they would in some way then make the gospel of God our Savior unattractive. You with me so far? I'm hoping that you will, you will really have to wrestle with this text in 1 Peter. Because uh, it's just not one of those where you read and you go, oh, that's easy. It's not, as, we, as you'll see. It's not. Um, but that you'll, you'll take some time and really work through it and seek to understand it. Now, our first Peter text is not at all different from these passages in the sense that the Apostle Peter, as the Apostle Paul did, commands Christians who were slaves to be obedient to their masters and show them respect or honor them. However, Peter does add something that the other passages don't specifically say. <laughs> uh, which, being, which being said leads Peter to point out to his readers the example of Christ. He's going to have to pull that out because of what he ends up saying. It's, it's needful. So let's read the text now, okay? Let's read the text. And maybe, I'll come back to this, but maybe just so you understand, in all of these passages, it is generally, and I'm going to come back and repeat this, but it is generally um, looked at as a, as a way for us to understand what it would look like in our employer-employee relationships. Okay? You have a boss? Or you are the boss, um, but, it, but there, there's a, a submission to the authority in your workplace. There's an authority. You may be the authority. You might, is what, this is interesting, in our, in our employment situations, you can be an authority and be under authority because we have multiple levels of management. Whereas in a master-servant situation, Probably not, because these were, especially with Peter, these were households. You have a master, 
and then, it, and then you have the servants. Theoretically, the master could have made the servant a supervisor, but it's not, it's in no way the same in that sense as what we have. So you might, you might have it on both ends. You're not only a, a, a boss of some sort, but you're also an employee. Or you're just an employer, just an employer. So all of these passages have, people have drawn from it and, and applied the principles of them to that situation, which is why I titled the uh, message, Our Witness in the Workplace. Okay? But I have something to say about that, and I'm going to save it till the end. So 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25. Let's read the text. Servants. Servants, okay, so that's how the ESV translates that word. The NIV and NET translates it just slaves. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, another good Bible, actually translates it household slaves. That's probably as close as you can get to what the word really means, household slaves. Servants, slaves, household slaves is really what it is, the word means. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What? Okay, Peter, you better explain. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Pause. The word translated beaten, okay? Some translations try to soften that, but it literally means to strike with the fist. That's what it means. So beaten is a good translation. And some say that such beatings expressing, in this context, expressing the master's will, ill will, that is, toward the slave, were sometimes common occurrences in some situations. Okay? Back to the text. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And now... He points them to Christ, because that is where you have to go here. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He didn't do anything wrong. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Yet, when he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is God the Father. Peter goes on, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now this morning, we're not going to get that far into the details of the text. That's why it's a part one. 
but rather I design today to be more of an introduction to the text and to give you something to think about over the next couple of weeks and to wrestle with as we explore this passage together. Now, did you observe the thing that Peter added to this discussion on servants and masters? Did you observe it? What's the, what's the thing that he added that we didn't see in, in Paul's exhortations? Unre- right. Be subject to your master with all respect. Yeah, yeah, got it. Not like that's easy either, but yeah, got it. That's what Paul has been saying. That's, that was the, the line. But Peter adds not only to the good and gentle, which by the way means that there were good masters, Okay. Otherwise, he wouldn't, you know, hypothetically, no, there are good masters, but also be subject to the unjust. In other words, to the bad ones as well. That's what Peter's saying. That's what he added. That's what makes this unique, this passage. Now, generally speaking, and you see if you agree with me, submission to authority always seems to be a challenge for our human hearts. Yes or no? Yes, most of you are saying yes. It, submission to authority, just, okay, without any extenuating circumstances, <laughs> difficult circumstances, submission to authority, period. I mean, we see it. Our little ones, but it's not just in our little ones, but you see it there. It's there. You don't even have to teach them that. It's there, and then they grow up into adults, and it's there. It comes out maybe in different ways, but it's there. So submission to authority is, is, is difficult. Yeah? Because of our fallenness. But how much more so when the authority we are called to submit to is unjust? <laughs> really, Peter? And this, beloved, what I want to point out to you, highlights, exalts, demonstrates, shows forth the uniqueness of Christianity. It stands out, or it should, in this world. It stands out, beloved. You live faithfully, in obedience to the scriptures, as the word of God has called you, you will stand. You, people will see that. It is so unlike the natural response of the world in, in every area of life, and certainly in the workplace as well, or at least it should be. You should stand out. Not as the jerk, but as, you know, but as something that draws people's attention even to that, like, this is different. And, and I would say that the Christian, because of that, the Christian life can't be lived out because it is so different, so unique, so unnatural. It cannot be lived out without actually being a Christian. It can't. You, our natural response, let's go back, our natural response to submission is, because of our fallenness or Submission to authority is to not submit. 
We agreed on that, right? Add to that unjust or cruel authority. And every nerve in our body fires. Punch him in the face. No? Just me. Okay. All right. All right. So if I'm going to obey these instructions of the Lord, I, there is no way I can do it without having the Spirit of God in my life, that supernatural power. I must be born again. I think, it's, I think people really struggle sometimes with the Scriptures and what, they, what it says to do because they're not believers. They're, they think they can just come here Look at it and do it. No, it's not doable without the power of God, without a transformed heart, without a, being a new creation in Christ. It's not possible. In fact, I tell people when giving marital counseling, the first thing I start with is, where are you with the Lord? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you born again? I need, I need to find that out because I'm about to tell you things that you aren't going to be able to do. <laughs> Unless you are born again. I'm going to tell you, husband, that you love your wife, not, not because she deserves it or because uh, she's lovable. In fact, even when she's unlovable, I'm going to tell you to lay down your life for that woman, to give yourself to her, to serve her. That is so unnatural in our fallen state. Wives, I'm going to tell you to submit to your husbands, to respect them and honor them. No, not when you think they're honorable, respectful. No, I'm going to tell you what the scriptures say. You want to have a good marriage? You want to have a marriage that honors God? You want to be blessed? These are the things you are to do, but husband and wife, you can't do those things unless you have the power of God in you. You see? So it's the same with this. It's the same with this. So if you're not a believer, you need to become one. You need... Certainly because to avoid the wrath to come and to be saved and to be set free, but, but more importantly, to live the life, the life that God has called you to live. And it's a good life. It's the blessed life. To live it, you must be a believer in Jesus Christ, an authentic, bona fide believer, born again, Spirit of God living inside of you. Okay? And that makes me say also, thank you, God, for, for giving me the strength and the ability through your spirit to carry these things out. I'm glad he didn't just say, do it. <laughs> Watch this. They're going to fall flat on their face. No, he gives us his, his spirit that enables us to do these things and to live the blessed life, all right? Now, just a quick word on the Greek word that is translated unjust because I want you to think about these things and, and consider them. It's translated unjust in the ESV. Let me... Uh, let me find it again. Unjust. Be subject to your masters with all respect, verse 19, not only to the good in general, but also to the unjust at the end of verse 18. Do you see it there? Okay. Unjust is an acceptable translation of the underlying Greek word. It is. One who is being unjust could be defined as one who is not behaving according to what is morally right and fair. One who is unjust is could be defined that way. One who is not behaving to what is morally right and fair, okay? But 
in my opinion, a slightly better word than unjust would be the word perverse, which is how the NET has translated this passage, which makes the passage even all the more difficult. The NET translates it this way, Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. Let me explain why I say that and why I believe the NET translates it that way. The Greek word literally means crooked. Crooked. It is the word from which we get our English word scoliosis. Scoliosis. And that is a term, if you don't know, that we use to describe uh, any sideways curvature in the normally straight vertical line of the spine. I myself have minor scoliosis. Is that right, doctor? Okay, thank you. But the Greek word, I have all these people checking me. I, I look out there, oh, is it okay? You know, if they shake their head, no, I'm like, oh, I said something wrong. So, but the Greek word was used metaphorically to speak of a moral crookedness of a moral crookedness or a moral perversity or a turning away from that which is good and right. Now, in two other passages that the word is used, the ESV actually translates it crooked. It just uses the word crooked. But in the context, you know he's not just talking about, you know, something just not being straight, but he's talking about a moral perversity. I'll show you. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching the gospel. He calls on the nation of Israel to repent, okay? So he's laying all that out. And then we come to verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this, there it is, crooked generation. Crooked generation. He's talking about the generation of Israel at that time. And just so you know, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Bible, they translate it there perverse. NIV, corrupt. It's a little less strong. Looking back at verse 23 of chapter 2 and 36, we understand why Peter says they are a crooked generation. Just so you can feel the weight of it. What makes them crooked? Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, it was evident that he was who he said he was, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Perverse. Here is a holy, the righteous one, doing good. And you took him and killed him. Crooked generation. Feel the weight of the word? It says in 236, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's why he refers to him as a crooked generation. Repent! Turn to God. Cry out for his mercy that you might be saved. That's the message. Peter, okay? Repent from this crooked generation. We also have the word in Philippians. The Apostle Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 14, to the church, to Christians, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent 
children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked, there's the word, and twisted. So he uses another word, a twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He uses the word twisted. It has a similar meaning to crooked. Okay, It means corrupted, distorted. The NIV translates it depraved. Crooked. Moral perversity. Another translation of the Bible, going back to verse 18. So ESV translates it unjust. The NAT translates it perverse, which I prefer. The Holman Christian Bible translates it this way. Household slaves, submit to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. Cruel. All right? You with me? Now, these are Peter's instructions. Okay? Now, after Peter issues the very difficult command for submission to even unjust, perverse, cruel masters, Peter then goes on to provide a reason for such submission in the verses that follow, which we will explore in more detail next time. <gasps> because I want you to wrestle with this for a little bit. But right now, I simply want to point out something so that we don't inappropriately apply this text. Okay, I want, I want this to be in our thinking process as we work through it. And remember I told you that the text is used to, to speak to the working situation. I mean, because this was primarily the working situation for Rome, master-slave. There were freemen, but a good portion of the Society were slaves, and they were masters of the slaves. And these specifically, remember these, that word kind of points more to the household servant. They actually worked in the home under the master. So many Bible commentators are quick to point out, and um, I mentioned, I made reference to this as well, that the deplorable and disgusting race-based slavery of the 19th century was different in various ways than the institution of slavery in the first century under the Roman Empire. They are quick to point that out. And as I said, there are some differences. Certainly the biggest one is it wasn't race-based. So populations, it didn't matter. They were enslaved because they were taken over by the power of the Roman Empire, and other empires did this as well. And there is the added element of one could enslave themselves and uh, choose to do that. So certainly there are some distinctions, okay? And one writer commenting on that says, although mistreatment of slaves could occur, now he's speaking to the first century, and by the way, did occur, otherwise Peter wouldn't have needed to address it, it must be remembered that first century slaves were generally well-treated and we're not only, here's another difference, unskilled laborers, but often managers, in some sense, overseeing the house, overseers, and trained members of the various professions. So they would have been doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. Did I say that right? Artisans. Crafts, making crafts and such. They were normally paid for their services and could expect to eventually purchase their freedom. So you see some distinctions? Yeah, 
Of course, in order to purchase your freedom, you needed the permission of your master under more circumstances, so there's that. Uh, normally paid for services, yes. And certainly, as I told you, they grew up in the household, so they, were, they would train, these people would be trained, they would learn a skill, a craft, but they were still working in this situation where they were a servant, they were a slave, they were a household servant, and they answered to a, a particular master. And so all that, that may have been true, and the degree to those things are true is debated because we weren't there, so we try to draw out from ancient documents what exactly did occur, okay? You with me? So I don't want to get into a discussion about how much of that is true, how much of it isn't. Generally speaking, yes, those things were true, but the truth that no one disputes is that Roman slaves, like all slaves of history, were considered to be property. And as property, their masters were free to basically do with them what they wanted. Uh, Again, commenting on that, and those things combined, one writer says this, It would be wrong to think that the lot of slaves was always wretched and unhappy, although I'd rather be a freeman, for sure, and that they were always treated with cruelty. It would be wrong to think that in the first century. Many, but how many is hard to say, slaves were loved and trusted members of the family. Certainly, remember, this is generational slavery. Household servants, so they would grow up and... And by the way, practically speaking, to, to mistreat your, your slave as a master would be uh, rather foolish because it would just make everything more difficult, right? So there's the practical approach. But still, they were, there were slaves that were mistreated by cruel masters. But he goes on. But one great inescapable, inescapable fact dominated the whole situation. In Roman law, a slave was not a person but a thing, and he had absolutely no legal rights whatsoever. For that reason, there could be no such thing as justice where a slave was concerned. It was legal under Roman law to treat your slave as a piece of property. And with a piece of property, you guys all know this, you can do what you want with a piece of property, right? In fact, just kind of thinking back, or looking back, uh, I think 3rd century, 4th century, B.C., philosopher, maybe you've heard of him, Aristotle, so that you understand the thinking. Now, obviously, we're in the time of Christ, so we're in the 1st century A.D., but this, this thinking was prevalent in society. Here's what he wrote. There can be no friendship nor justice towards inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, nor yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So... They're just a tool in your toolbox of the master. He can use it to serve his purposes. He can do what he wants with it. Now, obviously, 
uh, it would make sense for the master to use that tool well and to take care of the tool just like you would take care of your tools in your garage. To abuse your tool would be foolish, yet we know the fallenness of humanity, yes? We know how ugly they can be. And we know what unchecked power can produce in the heart of a fallen man. They abuse it. So another writer commenting on that says, because the slave had no legal rights and was subject to the whims of his master, many slaves would suffer at the hands of cruel masters. Christian slaves would be especially targeted. And, and they, that's debated why, or discussed why. I, it could just be, look, you're a Christian, and you know what there's hostility from the lost world towards Christianity because as the Christian lives out his Christian life and serving God, that pushes back against the one who rejects God. They, they don't like it. It's a reminder again and again that they aren't submitting their lives to Jesus Christ as they see this one who is. That could create some hostility, certainly. Masters, unbelieving masters toward their Christian slaves. But yeah, being a, a good Christian slave, a Christian slave could bring you um, even more problems with an unbelieving master. So the bottom line is, listen, the unjust, perverted, cruel behavior of a master, like them beating their house servant who has done no wrong, was not illegal under Roman law. It wasn't illegal. They weren't doing anything illegal. And the slave because of how they were considered as a slave, had no legal recourse. They could do nothing. Now, I bring all that up because, because, as I told you, it's quite common for Christians to turn to these slave passages and draw from them instruction or direction for employees and employers. And you may be an employee or an employer in here. Okay? And if you're not, you're just a wife and you work at home, you don't work outside the home, then you answer to your husband. There's, there's things there as well. And if you don't have a husband, well, then I guess you answer to God. But you probably then work. So you have an employee, employer, and you're an employee. Okay? So there's, all these relationships are governed through the Scriptures. There's always someone we're answering to. So I want to say to you that I agree that the principles in this text should be, can be, should be applied to our employment relationship. But I think we need to think carefully about how we apply it. That's what I want to, that's what I want to close with today as you walk out of here thinking about this high calling that Peter has called Christians to, specifically uh, Christian slaves. And certainly the principles there can be applied to us. But let me point out the obvious. Uh, to you and why this is something you need to keep in your mind as we consider the text, we are not slaves. We are slaves of Christ, but in our government, under our law of the land, I am not a slave. Eh? Hello? I am not, I am not a slave. Um, so my employer is not my master. In that same sense, meaning legally, he can do whatever he wants, and I'd have no recourse to take. 
So I say that because, because of this, because sometimes I've heard this passage taught, and it feels like what is being taught is, no matter what happens in the workplace, employee, shut up and take it. And that is what God has called you to. Okay? So let me ask you a question. If um, on Monday, tomorrow, your boss decides to uh, beat you (laughs) uh, with his fist, you just, you know, not because you you were late this time, but just because. Uh, actually, you did nothing wrong. You, you, you're actually, a, let's say, a good employee, but he just decides to beat you. And then, imagine this, and then you come to Pastor Jeremy and go, I mean, assuming you didn't uh, sell him back and then end up in jail, but let's just say you didn't do that, and then you said, Jeremy, I don't, what should I do, Pastor? Oh, accept your beating uh, patiently, because that is... Uh, God delights in that. He, he, he finds, uh, God finds favor. Accept it and continue to submit to this guy who illegally, under our law, uh, beats you. Do you, hear what I'm, do, you listen, do you hear what I'm saying? Okay, so on one side, we live in a different context. We are not slaves. We have laws. Our employers have laws. As employees, there are laws that we live under. I want you to understand that when Peter is writing to those slaves, what the masters were doing was not illegal. There was no illegal behavior going on. So I think in that sense, we can bring it over into our particular world and remembering that it, you know, this is legal behavior. Uh, if the masters had done something illegal, they certainly could have faced charges from the Roman Empire, and that could have been dealt with. But the whole situation is different because slaves had no legal recourse. They couldn't even, they were property. But I am not a slave and neither are you. So as I consider this passage, if my boss were to beat me or, for instance, something is simple, tell me I could no longer take lunch breaks. Again, would my advice to them, my counsel to them as a pastor be, hey, just work through lunch. That's what your boss wants. And do it patiently and continue to submit to him. God will be pleased. I don't think so, beloved. I do not think so. I don't think that's the situation. Or how about harass you sexually? In fact, I I would even argue that if your boss was overstepping the lines legally and harassing you legally, sexually, or touching you inappropriately or all that, I would even suggest it would be good for you too. Address that matter under the law, which you're allowed to do legally, and report them for the sake of every other person in that workplace that may have to face that. We can do that under the law. We can operate under the law. We're allowed to. God does not look down on us because we do that. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. Now, of course, as we'll go through the passage, you'll see how we approach that situation even. So even if we do have a a boss who is doing something illegal, the way we approach that should be with calmness, and we're still not allowed to. So if the boss hits you, you're not supposed to strike the boss back. 
but you could certainly put up your hands and defend yourself or run away. You're not a slave. You can actually leave. I, I would even suggest that this slave living under these circumstances could not leave the house. Okay, he couldn't say, you're a bad master. And I, this over master over here, he has a sign on the door, help wanted, and I'm going over there. That was, you had no ability to do that under the law. But here, if someone was living in, in, in a bad situation with a bad boss, are they not free to find another job? Yes. But they could also stay. They could stay. They're free to do that as well. Maybe there's other circumstances in that job situation, like they're ministering to people there and they want to continue to minister to people there. And so for the sake of those people and their, their eternality, they, they stay and they submit to this cruel boss. But they are not, I don't believe they're sinning because they choose under the freedom that we have to find another place of employment. You with me? Okay, now, let's talk about this. And this is what I want you to think about. But could a boss do something to you, employee, that is not illegal, but is still harmful or unjust or cruel? Okay, I'm just checking. So, under the laws of the land, being a jerk is not illegal. I Maybe some of you, I'm thinking some of the millennial generation doesn't know that, but I know I'm going to take heat for that. I'm going to take it. Being a jerk is not illegal. Being a boss who's just... Who doesn't show kindness, who doesn't show appreciation... Who doesn't care? Just work, you know? Is even harsh on some levels. Guess what? Not illegal. There is a direct, we can draw that right over. So he's not doing anything illegal. Uh, How about this? The boss, who's an unbeliever, because we're going to assume he's an unbeliever if he's being cruel and evil and all these things or, or harmful. He knows you're a Christian because of that. For whatever reason, he's like, eh, you know, this Christian, you know, he, he works hard and everything, but yeah. But he has this other buddy over here who he, you know, they hang out together and they go to the strip club together and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm just going to the darkest place I can. And they're over here and you've been working hard and you've been serving the Lord and honoring the Lord and, 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 and working unto the Lord and doing a good job. And you know what? There's a promotion coming up, uh, an opportunity. You really... If, if it was all said and done, you, you deserve the promotion. But boss, man, promotes his buddy over here that hangs out with him at the bars and gets drunk with him and so on and so forth, likes to tell dirty jokes with him. Okay? Is that illegal? It's not. Hello. It's not. That's not illegal. Certainly uh, unjust. Certainly perverse, even. Why, why would you... Here's a guy that actually, or gal, did everything they were supposed to do, did it right, serve you well. They should be promoted. And yet you promote Yahoo over here. You know? Yeah, I'll leave it at that. That's not, that's not right. That's perversity. In fact, they may even be a loser in the sense that they don't even do the job well, but they get promoted. Have you ever had that? Have you ever seen that? 
Have you ever experienced that? My goodness. All right, so what do you do? Hey! Hey! You can't do that, boss man. Well, yes, I can, and I did, because there's nothing illegal about it. Or, more likely, you don't do that because you know if you speak back, you, uh, you'll pay for it. it, one way or another, right? So what do you do? Well, this is very common. You stop working hard. You, you show him disrespect. You dishonor him. You look to him and you say, you know what? You're a bad boss, and because you're a bad boss, I'm not going to be such a great employee. Or how about this? Yeah. Hey, boss, uh, by the way, here's another one. These are fun. I've got to finish. I'll finish on this one. But I want to think these through in your own mind, okay? It's, uh, it's not illegal to pay you $15 an hour when you think you deserve 20 So you think, you think boss man is, uh, is bad because he's paying you 15 but you know you're worth 20 Dude. Maybe you are worth 20 okay? And maybe he is underpaying you, but he's not doing anything illegal. So you decide, I'm only going to give him $15 an hour worth of work, whatever that means. Somehow you figure it out. So you say, I heard a story like this where someone said to someone else, listen, dude, he said to another employee, Dude, you know what? You need to stop working so hard. You need to work so hard. You know the boss only pays us, you know, 15 or whatever it was, 12 an hour. So don't be working like you're getting paid 20 an hour. That is not Christian. What Peter calls us to is to, in spite of that bad boss, again, not doing something illegal, but he's doing something and it's, it is unjust on some, maybe it is unjust on some level, to continue to bear up under that patiently and continue to do good and submit and honor him. Do your very best. And the only person that can really do that is a person who's been changed and transformed by Christ and perspective is heavenly, right? Because if this is all you've got, if this is it, and employment's a big piece of our lives, right? And your boss starts to mess with that. And this is all you've got. You come unglued. You come undone. You better not be doing that. You better treat me fair all the time. You better give me everything I deserve. But if you're living for the world to come, if you're looking for your reward in the next life, then all right, boss man. Boss man can be, you can do, you can be unfair. You can, you can, you can treat me in a way that's not kind or cruel. You know what? Either way, I serve the Lord. I serve the Lord. The Lord has called me to submit to you, to honor you. I'm going to be good in spite of you. And I'm not going to do it because... And when you come, or if anybody comes and asks me, dude, why are you still working so hard for this guy? You know he's a jerk. Then you have an opportunity to tell them about your hope. You hear me? But when you act like the world acts then you've lost your witness at work. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray for your help to come under it. And Lord, help us to 
to not just blow by these things. Help us to think them through. Really think them through. Father, may we repent of the areas that do not align in our lives with your word. And may we, by your grace and by your power, walk according to it for your glory, for your honor. In Christ's name.